If there were financial incentives to being kind and to not harming, I think we would have a much better world. Hello, Ben Jaffe, fellow podcasting friend of mine. How are you? Hello. That was a very natural start to the conversation. <laughs> How are you doing, Lyle? <laughs> I'm good. I made the decision um, this year to do Fun A Day, a Fun A Day project, which I record an episode every single day of January. So far, I've done two of them. They've both been about an hour long. Wow. About an hour and a half editing. It's taken over my life, but that's okay. And it's called Lunch With Lyle? It's called Lunch With Lyle. Are, what are we going to do about the fact that it's dark outside? Shh, don't tell anybody. Okay. Linner with Lyle. A lot of the themes that I kind of want to explore, you and I have been exploring for years together. Yeah. My first conversation with my sister about connection and how she has made good connections in her life and kept on, held on to people that are important to her and build a support group and just it was really touching and then mm. yesterday i had a conversation with west modes um have you met west oh modes? yeah um no. i i know him on facebook yeah west is an amazing artist and we talked quite a bit about a lot of things you can go ahead and listen to the episodes again but in my preamble to what this podcast is it's partially about how we can thrive as humans and engage with technology and I feel like with 20 years of boasting about how wonderful technology is with the GeekSpeak program that you have been a major part of, um, I haven't focused as much about general human thriving, mm. though we talk about it sometimes on the show. So this podcast is more about that exploration, though I do want it to stay kind of technical because I'm not a philosophy expert, right? So I want to mm. be able to bring in some kind of experience. In any case, I have a few themes I want to chat with you about. One of them is that I have found it extremely useful to understand that what I perceive as the truth in the world is just my observation giving me some concept of truth. And you have shared with me quite a bit about exploring how, you, how we actually perceive things and what it really means to know what the world is through our senses. So I thought we could talk a bit about fun examples of that to help people understand that going from their perspective might not be going from some sort of shared truth. Mm. I love this topic. Um, I mean, actually, just, just to start, we can talk about the periphery of vision. I don't know. You're, we're, I can see you here. It looks like we're recording video. I'm not sure if that's going to be published, but... There have been so many things that have happened just outside of frame in the last one minute of my cat scratching at the door and then knocking my microphone and all kinds of stuff. Um, I feel like that's actually kind of a good metaphor for just us rolling through our lives. Um, the The main difference, I think, is that like I'm looking at your face on the screen right now. And I feel completely confident that I have no idea what's off to the left or to the right. But when we experience our lives, we have very strong confidence that we understand what is in our blind spots. Because a lot of times we don't even see that we have blind spots. What do you mean we don't see that we have blind spots? 
I mean, if we take vision as a very literal example, um, I, I don't know if we've had this conversation before, but you cannot see, and neither can I, color in our peripheral vision. Right. We just have the rods, so it's just black and white in our peripheral. Right, right. Um, most of the cones in your eye are uh, concentrated in a part of your eyeball that that means that whatever you're looking at, you're going to have a, a much sharper image and a, a higher uh, a, a better ability to see the color of it. Um, but I, when I, you're... Mm-hmm. I'm sitting in front of a 32-inch screen, and you are very close to one side of it, to the, from my perspective, to the right side of the screen. On the left-hand screen is another web browser open, and I can tell there's a picture of a person that has um, brownish skin or you know some form of human skin is there. Maybe I don't even know what necessarily color it is, but I do know that it's not black and white in my peripheral, and I'm not moving my eyes. So how... Does what you say, it's black and white, and my experience of it being color, why is that different? So you can see luminance, and you know that human skin tends to be within a particular color range on the orangish side, whether it's a dark orange mixed with uh, black, if you were to mix it with paints, or whether it's very, very white mixed with just a tiny bit of brown. We don't have blue skin. And so your brain can probably pick up the data about the luminance of what's coming in from the side, the brightness, and infer what the color is. But you can do experiments, if you have a friend, you can do experiments uh, where you take a bunch of colored markers and you just you look at the, the cap of each of these markers and throw out the yellow one because it's so light that you could tell from the luminance. And like have, dry, 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 dry erase, uh, erase mark caps, a blue and a red that have about the same luminosity. Yeah, okay. exactly. Luminance, yeah. And have a friend hold it outside of your peripheral vision and then have them move it in until you can just see it. And you're looking straight ahead at a particular thing and you're concentrating and not moving your eyes. You won't be able to, you won't know, you won't be able to accurately predict what color the marker is that they're holding up. But now, if you know what the color is, then you will see that color. You will have the, so, the feeling that you're actually seeing a red marker in your periphery vision, which is really uh, uh, messes with your mind. If your friend is messing with you and switches the markers, then you're the seeing red until you this, look. If you've already seen the markers, you know there's a red one and a blue one. When it comes into peripheral, you will color it. Your brain will colorize it to be red or blue. And then if it's wrong... As it gets closer, as you look directly at it, it will switch. Is that the idea? Uh, I mean, I'm I'm not going to say anything about how someone will perceive it, because I but I guess the the whole point is that we we have experiences of the world that do not necessarily correlate with actual reality, and it it doesn't matter as much to me how you perceive the world versus how I perceive the world. The important thing is to know that both of us have these biases, and they're not biases that we can. Um, sidestep, even if we know about them. By the way, I looked over at the picture, and it's actually our my friend Warren Sack. You know Warren as mm-hmm. well. I'm doing. I'm editing up an episode of Geek Speak because now that I'm just doing episodes all the time, I'm all into making audio again. And of course, I did know that he was up on screen and kind of the color of skin he has, and he had a blue shirt on because I was looking at it just moments before we called each other. So, is there also a a mapping in my 
brain that's not necessarily conscious about what's there. Like I couldn't have told you that it was Warren. But as soon as I looked over to Warren, like, oh, yeah, I was looking at it a moment ago. Is there still something happening in my visual cortex that, or visual system that kind of knew that was a human being because I looked at it earlier? Uh, I can't answer that because I don't actually have the answer. Um, but I can say just from observing myself, um, more often, I don't, I don't know what the answer is. I look and then I think, oh, of course, I would have guessed that. And it's not about whether I actually knew it as for in my own experience of in my own experience of my experience, very in my own meta experience. Um, it's very much this like it's like this rewriting of my experience mm. to make me right. To make you correct. To make me correct. Yeah. And uh, yeah, correct. And I find that deeply troubling <laughs> I I find that deeply troubling, both uh, as in, in terms of its the ramifications for society. Um, one, two, how exploitable that makes us. If we think about um, all of these startups and multi-billion-dollar corporations employing machine learning to try to figure out how to get us to click a little bit more or come back a little bit more, we're super exploitable systems. And we don't think we're exploitable. It's That's kind the, of, yes. it's like Yahoo when they're like, yeah, our security is fine. <laughs> it really is not. So that that's exactly the the thing I'm thinking about. And I think the thing that helps me understand that more is to really look at the pieces that I'm, I'm tricking myself with, with these mm-hmm. perceptions. The other great example of this is... Um, is that we don't have detail in our peripherally either. We have only detail in a very small part of our visual cortex. In fact, as I recall you telling me before, if you kind of reach your, or maybe it was an episode where we had an, somebody on. Yeah, that it might have been my friend Fiona. Yeah, it was, friend, yeah it was one episode of, with Fiona was on years and years ago. The day we spent at the beach and you guys played music was great. Oh, yeah, anyway, was fun. I think she said that if you put your hand out and you stick your thumb up and you look at the, thing, the size of your fingernail, your thumb, it's, That's yeah, where both we have thumbs, both, both thumbs. thumbs. Oh, so both put your thumbs. thumbs together, put them out at arm's length. That roughly that size is how much you can see, like a lot of detail in your in your visual field. A lot of real detail, but you have the perception of seeing everything in crystal clarity. Right, the entire time, I it never feels like it's being blurred in the peripheral at all. It feels just as accurate. And of course, if you look at it, it is. But what's really happening is your brain is generating that for you? Filling in a massive amount of um, detail, some of which is there. We're very good <laughs> at predicting what should be there. So that's the um, thing is that it's, some not, is not. it's not really that our brain is doing a perfect picture for us. It's that it's telling us, yeah, it's cool. It looks fine. So that we don't perceive that it's blurry. Mm-hmm. It's a mix of that, right? It's partially that we can kind of see the detail in it, but also partially that our brain tells us, yeah, you can see it all. It's fine. Yeah, like if your brain doesn't focus on how sharp an area of its visual system is, it's not going to notice whether it's sharp or not. Yeah. That just means that our systems are lying to ourselves. Yeah. So, I mean, to, to pull this back a little bit, to generalize this a little bit, I think a lot about... The importance of critical thought, uh, critical thinking, and and part of critical thinking 
is the um the habit of not doubting but i guess like treating your own uh strong beliefs with some amount of suspicion you know uh whatever whatever assumptions you have or whatever uh, things you feel very strongly about uh, maybe you should be a bit more suspicious about them um so i guess that's that's one piece of it there's another piece that i i just lost let's, it'll come back it'll come back let's map some more stuff that's like this so that's the oh, visual cortex yeah let, let, let me finish that thought which is i it just came back it's also uh important to have an awareness of the cognitive biases that we have like what ways of thinking do we have that are just fallacious or wrong and um the more we know of those about those things the more we can employ them to think a little bit more clearly if we employ them so there's the there's the like conscious thinking part of like understanding what your shortcomings are and then compensating for them thinking more slowly whatever but then there's also the habit of of um of going there in the first place mm-hmm. and a lot of people don't a lot of people don't think to because they haven't been taught to and also i think some people just don't like to meta think as much as i do i don't know i find this fascinating and i i I know some people who would be like oof i don't want to spend my time doing this (laughs) you you explained to me at one point i believe it was about um the peripheral vision not being really clear or not having the color Mm -hmm. that you were having experience of starting to see it and that it was uncomfortable is that is that right yeah yeah it's um it's uh so have you seen the matrix yeah have you seen the new one i've seen the new one uh we don't need to talk about it because it's such a new movie great movie um and great great concepts right but it almost feels like a little a little bit like seeing the edges of the matrix or like the episodes of star trek where they're in the holodeck and and they're in a forest but then there's like a little flicker in the corner and you see a little bit of the room that they're actually in you know it almost feels a little bit like that um when when you started training yourself to see this yeah it's like the more the more i paid attention to what i could not see with fidelity with clarity the more i was able to then not see it like at the beginning when i learned about this i felt like no i can see everything clearly i can see everything around me really clearly right now but a year later after thinking about this and learning even more about it now i'm feeling like oh maybe maybe i can maybe i can't fully see that and now this is maybe 10 years later i don't know it's it's almost like knowing how you both you and i are both have been in show business and and done technical theater. It's a little bit like knowing how everything works backstage. When you see a show, it still can be magical, but there's some part of you that's like, ah, I know how the sausage is made. Yeah. I know what's actually going on here. And there's something slightly unsettling about it, but also extremely cool about it. So I don't know. I, I'm not really sure what that, that balance that describes- is. That describes optical illusions in general and describes magic tricks. And one of the things that I really got about doing magic, I didn't slide a hand magic since my kids were young, all my yep. life, really. You've when fooled I was, me many times. Yeah. And one of the things that's going on when a magician does a sleight of hand is that 
they're using the brain of the witness, the person that's watching them. They're using their brain to fill in the things they think they want to know. So when you see a coin disappear in a hand, your brain helps make the magic even more unbelievable because it does put the coin in the hand that it's not really in because Mm -hmm. the gesture and everything made sense to the brains. The brain's like, yep, it's over there. And it's just, it's the same kind of reality as seeing it be in that wrong hand. So then when it's exposed that your brain was tricked, it really is a fundamental, it's like something tricked you. Well, the real thing that tricked you is your own brain. You just didn't know what the cues were that your brain was using to tell you where it was. Uh, I just got off of a call with my family just before I hopped on the on the horn with you. Is that the, the saying, sure. on the horn? Um, and we were talking about the movie The Sixth Sense, which is 1999, I think, or 98 or something. You can do spoilers on that one. Uh, <laughs> turns out <laughs> the ship sinks. Now, <laughs> um, yeah, but, but with we were talking about actually exactly this, of like how much the brain just does like and accepts as as part of it so you watch the movie the first time and your brain makes all these assumptions about you know who is talking to who uh uh things that happen after the scene things that must have happened just before the scene you get to the end you find the twist and then you rewatch the movie and you realize oh i just made up like most of my perception of this movie i just made up I totally was, made my own story. What's really interesting there is that it's not just the making the story up. It's also that we actually understand a whole bunch. When I say understand, we have been trained on how film and television works. So because we've watched it a lot, we take it as read certain strategies that you do. Like an over-a-shoulder shot will give you a certain feeling. If you, it, A great example is if you ever edit your own video and you have someone walking you know, across the street. If you have them walk back the other direction without showing the turn, it's disorienting because there's a whole language to film that we are really good at. We just don't know we're good at it. Mm-hmm. And it's, so So they actually use those techniques in the film to give you that feeling that it's all normal, if you will. Yeah. yeah. So I, I kind of want to turn the question back around to you. What is your own experience of your perception as you go, not like when you're thinking about it really hard, but just as you're going through your day, day by day? I think, I think the perception stuff, um, I think the thing that I've noticed it the most, but, but this perception stuff has led me to this, is the feeling like someone tells me I've said something or done something, and I tell a very convincing story about actually what really did happen. And I am fully aware while I'm telling that story that I am basing that not on a memory, but on a perception of who I am and what I would do in that circumstance. Mm. And that is really horrible because <laughs> what it, I'm a very convincing person, a very charismatic person. I can argue fast and talk fast. I believe and you. So, <laughs> and so I'm, I'm saying this in a bad sense, right? Because it's a bullying tactic as well. And I've started coming to the point where anytime I have that kind of conviction of truth, I start going, except that I could be completely wrong here. Because I realize that just like I see detail everywhere, I don't really, I can be wrong all the time about things. There's that great, we use this example when we've talked about this kind of stuff before. There's this case study on um, inmates coming up to parole. Do you remember this story? Mm, No. 
So a parole board, and there's there's some types of parole where it's just one judge decides if the person makes parole or not. Sometimes it's a board, but sometimes it's just one judge. And the best prediction on whether a person would get parole has nothing to do with their race, their sexual orientation, their gender, none of that. All it was was, was it right after lunch or was it before lunch? Because you get a lot, a lot more denials right before lunch and you get a lot more approvals after lunch because the judge has eaten. Hmm. Now, when you then, you know, all the judges have really strong arguments, you know, to why they said, no, this person is not, avail- not, not ready for parole or why this person is ready for parole. And if you look at how they answer it, they're convinced it's about the parolee and their clean judgment. But statistically, it's about whether they had lunch or not. I I feel my memory is terrible, but I I feel like I feel like that study didn't replicate. I feel like I read that that study didn't replicate. No, but no studies do, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you're right. It probably doesn't doesn't replicate. Darn it. But but I was just doing a I was doing a quick search and I couldn't I couldn't f- pull that up really quickly. So. Uh, well, let's make it about our own perception. Yeah. I notice that I get angry about things when I haven't eaten, right? Yeah, there's a word for that. Hangry. Hangry, exactly. Yeah, I get hangry too. So I had one of these experiences just the other day. Um, my, I had some experience of feeling shame about something. I can't remember what it was. It was about not participating in enough chores around the house, right? So I felt like I had let my family down by not doing enough. And it was brought to my attention in a way that was kind of public. And I was embarrassed by that. Moments later, I found out that one of my kids had done something that, you know, wasn't what I would have done. And it surprised me. Instead of me going, oh, interesting. You decided to do that? Why? With curiosity and stuff, the kind of parent I want to be, mm. I snapped at them. What did you do this for? What? How? You know, I got angry about it. And so about 10 minutes later, when it kind of cooled down, I went back to my kid and I said, do you know why I yelled at you? And they're like, well, you didn't like what I did. I was like, no, it's because 20 minutes before that, I was felt shame. That's why I yelled at you. It had nothing to do with what you did. <laughs> I mean, I didn't like what you did. I didn't think it was the right decision. I didn't understand it, all that. But the reason why I got angry was completely about something else. Mm-hmm. In my youth, I wouldn't have made that connection. I wouldn't have understood mm. that. I would have justified, I would have felt righteous in my anger. As we all do, as we all want to. This is um this is one of the intersections with I mean with with, with our relationships with others, but I think especially in a in a in a media climate that rewards quick judgments shaming um uh click clicky content content that gets a lot of engagement um yeah um outrage content i i really worry about the intersection of those things yeah um i think it's it, i mean i think p- part of part of what makes this possible of course is the algorithms that are developed that are doing their optimization. But part of what makes this possible is that we've got these biases and these, these, um, these issues that, that we don't see in ourselves. And go ahead. I I can give you a great example actually of 
just another thing that's been coming up a lot for me is multitasking. I'm so bad at multitasking. <laughs> I'm so terrible at multitasking. Even the most basic, simple things. Like, like I will be brushing my teeth and then I'll do a little bit of tidying around the house while I'm brushing my teeth with an electric toothbrush. I, I don't even, like the only thing I have to do with this toothbrush is just move it around my mouth. <laughs> I don't have to. And I find that when I'm tidying, I stop moving the toothbrush around my mouth and like one molar gets really, a couple molars get really, really clean. And then when I'm actually moving the toothbrush around my mouth, I'm suddenly realizing I haven't picked up anything. I'm just standing there in the living room. And it's the fact that this is so absurd to me, I think indicates how much I feel like I should be able to do this, even though I clearly can't. Have you done any meditation? Um, Yeah, a little bit. Not too much. In the little bit I've done, I've been meditating on and off for a few years. And in the little, the thing that I'm always surprised by is just the simple task of, okay, just, you know, just do this one. Don't try, try not to think about anything and just count the number of breaths Mm. and really try not to do anything but count those breaths. Don't breathe strong or fast. Just do that. I, you know, in the beginning, I was losing my count at four. Brain went off everywhere. Now, I would still kind of keep a rhythm of a count, but I'd be thinking about something else, mm-hmm. right? Like this is amazing thing where because numbers are easy for us in some ways, we just can kind of count without thinking about it. I could also be thinking about what I'm going to do later in the day. And all, so the whole idea is to bring yourself back to focus and start counting again every time you notice that. Just, you know, four, sometimes you get up to seven and just consistently, you know, week after week after week, the same process happening because we can't really keep attention. Mm-hmm. We're much more reactionary than we think we are yeah the other thing i've noticed is the more engaged i am with digital devices the less i'm able to do in terms of attention but i don't i don't perceive that lack of attention you know i'm just i i just have a really short attention span and i'm not very good at being present with people and yeah it's i'm just i'm not I'm not the person who I believe I am in in the way that I act because of that. And um, the last couple of weeks especially, I've been trying to be really mindful about only picking up a digital device if I already know what I'm going to do on it. Like not just not just picking up the phone because it's there. Um you know, maybe maybe I have to take a poop. Maybe I should just go take a poop and not browse Twitter or or whatever. And the interesting thing about that too is when I open up my phone to do a specific thing, I notice the draw of those notification badges. You know, like Twitter didn't have any notification badges until I opened it for a specific reason. And then all of a sudden it had 18. And so I, I clicked on it mindlessly to clear them and to see what was there and nothing was there, of course. And I thought, why did I do that? And I, I closed I, it. And then an hour later, there's a, there's two notifications. It's just, it's amazing. It's amazing the magnetic pull that these devices really? have. And we choose it. That's uh, however much we can choose things. We choose to have these devices in our pocket and like interact with these gremlins every day. I've been having this 
amazing exploration of my my own self. And I, you know, this idea that there's actually two, um, there's actually two selves or or more potentially that are going on. That you're, you know, we have two hemispheres: our brain and our language center, and our ability to communicate is in one, and other things in the other. And that possibly it's a lot more cohesive and individual than we normally think. It's been separation of hemispheres where you start doing things like you when people have you know um, epileptic problems where they have serious epilepsy yeah. they separate the hemispheres corpus callosum the little yeah. thing in between and you blind one eye and you show them a um, a book and they say that's a book and then you also show them a pen and they say that's a pen and then you show them a duck and you say that's a duck and then you say which ones of these are together and they don't know what to associate with and then you change the other side and you show them the book and they don't see anything. They describe not seeing anything. And then you ask them to touch the things that are next to it, that are associated with each other. And their hand that isn't seeing it, theoretically, touch the book and the pen. So you have this weird thing where it's like connection meaning and language things are different parts of the hemisphere. Anyway, mm. that idea has led me into this thought process of why do I continually eat food at night or drink at night? And I wake up in the morning and I go, oh, I ate a snack late at night. I'm overweight. I ate a snack late at night. That was not good. I won't do that today. So all day I'm great until around 9 o'clock at night. And if I'm still awake, I end up eating a snack. It's still me. But one me is choosing not to do that and the other me is choosing to do it. And it's like this battle of who has control. Mm. I, it doesn't feel like I'm actually – the same individual in the morning and in the evening. Do you ever just go to the fridge and open it and just stare into the fridge? I'm I'm too much of a energy waste person <laughs> to think of. I like I oh, can't. I mean, like I'll immediately be like, "What am I doing? Close the door," because <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to waste energy. But but yeah, th- there's this this weird. It's like who is making these decisions? Yes. Um, the way that I think of it. And, and this is this is kind of based off of um, what Daniel Kahneman writes about in Thinking Fast and Slow. It's a book about, um, oh, it's, I think he describes it as, he names them System 1 and System 2 level thinking. One is just the, the more basic brain and the other is your neocortex that's like, you know, making reasoned choices and everything. And the idea is that that more basic brain runs on a lot less energy it's kind of like an integrated gpu versus a, a dedicated gpu on your computer nice. you like know that metaphor yeah like if you're not doing a lot of crazy stuff then it's just going to use the low power one and then when you need to do something that's a bit more intensive then it, it turns on the other one and i kind of feel that way sometimes like like why am i at the fridge i should probably What's... figure out why i'm at the fridge but my neocortex system... didn't decide to is the system one the base level one and system two is the more conscious one? I believe so. Okay. Well, we'll say conscious and, and unconscious even though it's kind of not right. Don't you think that the reason why you have trouble or the what I'm thinking is that the reason you have trouble brushing your teeth, keeping that rhythm going and also cleaning up is that it's the same um, same system in the brain that's doing those two things? Because um, you can drive the car and also talk to somebody or do other things, mm. right? Yeah, that's – I don't have an answer for you. I, I do not know. Um, Years ago, speaking of the split decision-making and who's actually deciding to do this stuff, 
I was playing D&D with a group of friends, really, I mean, some role-playing game. And it was an exciting, intense moment. Anyway, we're, we're playing this game. It was a battle. And I'm eating, like, chocolate-covered almonds that are in the center of the table. And I'm just eating them. And eating them. I'm like, I kind of want to eat these anymore. And I find myself eating them again. So it's a small enough table. We had a battle mat and stuff. It's a small enough table I can reach it. So at one point, I push it away. But I actually, at one point, I, le- I lean up and pick it up and eat it. I'm like, why am I eating this? So I turn to my friend Chris, and I say, Chris... He's a Marine. Okay? He's a, he was a former Marine, right? So he's kind of a strong guy, and he knows how to punch and everything. I said, if, if I eat another one of these almonds, I want you to punch me in the face. I was trying to stop myself from doing this. So he looks at me and he's like, really? And yeah. And the whole table hears this, right? About 10 minutes later, I made a critical shot and took out some bad guy. And we're like, yeah, we're all celebrating. Yeah. And I grabbed the almond. I put it through my mouth. I'm like chewing it, and everybody's silent in the middle of this excitement. I'm like, what? I didn't even know that I ate it. And he's like, okay. And he takes the ring off and he punched me in the face. Um, I didn't eat any more of those that night. But it's like, that wasn't me deciding to do that. I knew uh-huh. I was going to get punched in the face. I still made the decision. Fascinating. It's interesting that we define the word me as the neocortex, the one who talks about meta thought and, and whatnot. Yeah. It's it's a really interesting question to ponder too. I mean, you can go you can go uh, more levels away, and you can say, okay, this this bag of water meat sack thing that I'm walking around in and controlling, like this body, is that me? I I don't know. What parts of this body are me? What parts are not? You shed skin all the time, you know. You clip your fingernails. Yeah, like. Every seven years, all your cells are released, replaced, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Yeah. So, except for some, there are a couple. There are a couple cells that don't get replaced. So, it's not quite the ship of Theseus. That's not quite the ship of Theseus. Thank you for knowing that reference. Um, And it's not, of course, just the visual cortex that's doing this. It's also our audio cortex. We had a a great discussion a while ago that a couple people have come back to me and said, I love that discussion that you and Ben had about audio hallucinations, where when you're reading the text and you hear the words, that's what it sounds like. And when you're not reading the text, you're reading different text, but the audio is exactly the same. That's also what it sounds like. Your brain is constantly modifying what you perceive to fit your perception of what is right to hear. Yeah. There's the, 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 my favorite example of this is you have a video of someone going da, da, da. And then you have a video of someone going ba, ba, ba. And if you just play the audio, then people will hear it correctly. But if you play the audio of someone going ba 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 with the video of someone saying da 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 and you you they're synchronized people will hear what the video shows. They'll hear da 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 even the researchers who are doing this experiment who have seen this a million times like you can't turn it off. Right, it's automatic. Uh, it's similar to um, if you want to know if someone can read or not, and they're not want, they don't want to tell you, you can show them words of colors with the wrong color. So, like, ask them what color it is, not what the word says, and they will delay when the color and the word don't match mm-hmm. if they can read that language. So, like, you show them a the language they don't understand, it won't affect them at all. Oh, interesting. And there's no way you can you can't stop it. You know, it's detectable. It's like the only kind of lie detection we actually have <laughs> that's trustworthy. Huh. 
that probably wouldn't work for me in Spanish because I know Spanish, but it's so bad. Yeah, you have to. I, I would have to think more to, <laughs> to figure out the Spanish word. So if if our our fundamental what the truth in the world is is artif- is artifice like that. Mm. What you you were bringing up earlier, social media and algorithms that are trying to get us to do things. How are they? How are these systems taking advantage of us? I mean, why is clickbait clicky? Why is clickbait clicky? I think about these topics a lot, but. I'm I'm the wrong person to ask for um, pithy explanations, but um, maybe I'll, maybe I'll ask you what makes you pick up your phone without knowing what you're about to to use it for, or what makes you click on things. It's the same thing that gets me to eat, um, you know, the, the chocolate almond when I don't want to. So it seems like there may be a couple of different things going on because the the clickbaity article that is. That is outrageous. Oh, wait, darn it. What's the... There's a term that I recently learned about. It's not a new one, but I, I can't remember. Um, I think Scott Alexander, who's a rationalist writer, wrote about this. Um, but the idea is if you... Let's say that you have a deep fake, okay? And... Um, or let's say you have a, a fake viral video of like someone getting attacked by a shark or something like that. If it's if it looks really realistic, completely realistic, people are just going to assume that it's real. If it looks really obviously fake and everyone re- looks at it and says that's fake, everyone's just going to know it's fake. But if it's somewhere in between, that's what could make it viral because you've got people on one side who are like no this is real and you've got other people who are like no this is fake and both of them have things to latch on to and things to argue with and they end up kind of arguing with each other and and the content rises to the top in that way because it's being engaged with so an example of that that's not about you know fake shark videos it's like if we talk about something like cultural appropriation which is actually legitimate uh a lot of times the news stories covering something to do with cultural appropriation will be something that's kind of a little more on the border of absurdity. You know, like an example is someone goes to prom, uh, some, you know, white person goes to prom wearing a piece of traditional Chinese clothing, right? Uh, Cultural appropriation. And you have a news article uh, or a a news clip about that. That's probably going to get more engagement than the obviously egregious example or the example that's obviously totally fine. And right. but but there's this dilution of the legitimacy of of real ideas there. Because you have all of the because this this non-representative uh piece of content about this idea becomes the representative for that entire concept. Like let's say that video is the only thing that my uncle or someone hears about cultural appropriation. They're going to have a very strong opinion about it, whether it's really bad or it's silly and, and nonsense. Right. But then, but that dilutes, that dilutes the conversations we actually can have because all of our examples are the things that we can most easily fight about. Mm-hmm. Have an opinion about, have yeah. a stance. Yeah. 
you were talking about clicky, what makes things clicky. Um, I definitely have some kind of subset now in my brain for still images. I can look at a still image and go, that's, that's just trying to get me to click on it. Um, video is much trickier. Video pulls in me, pulls me in much more. Mm. And it's interesting, you know, anytime you see visuals, you are making that stuff uh, become a real thing. A great example is like animation. We all know how animation works, right? It's multiple frames and frame by frame. Video is like that as well. Right now, Ben, I'm looking at you and you're moving. We're on a video together and clearly you're moving. But actually, we both know that you're not really moving in the screen on my t- on my screen. I'm seeing lots of pictures and my brain is saying it's moving. So the process of watching video is your brain creating the experience you're having. And so there's something very, very odd about that. There's a, um, mm. this brings me back to meditation kind of concepts again. There's this wonderful quality about us not having an ability to make decisions that we think we, ha- we think we have an ability to make decisions all the time, that we have a free will. But in reality, when someone tells you something like, uh, Ben, you can't see it, but on my desk is a, a white mug. Whether you believe me or not, you definitely understood what I said. You know what a white mug is. And so no matter what you do, you can't not hear that, right? You have heard it. Hmm. So you don't have a decision on whether that concept is in your brain now. It's just hmm. in your brain. Hmm. Yeah, I don't, I don't get to choose what goes into my brain. Yeah. And therefore, I don't get to choose what ideas ultimately influence me. And if we think about these little phones as fire hydrants of mostly garbage, then you are deciding to just pump that into your system day after day after day every time you pick up your phone. Uh, I would go a step further and I would say, are we choosing to pick up the phone? Right. I don't know that we are. Am I choosing to go walk to the fridge when I'm not actually hungry? I'm just looking. I'm, I don't know. I'm bored or something like. Right. What what am I actually choosing to do? And that is a bit, that's a whole bunch about what we're talking about our perceptions. Yeah. What are we choosing to see? Well, actually, the things are lying to us all the time. Another great example of this is you've had the experience of doing something and going into a different room and then not remembering why you went to that room. That's actually a part of our brain system that's about mapping and geography and, and storage of information and context. And if you switch rooms, you are making your brain kind of change its structure a little bit or change its activity set, change its context. And you will lose information as you do that. And then you'll tell yourself a narrative about why you didn't really lose that information. Your brain will trick you into thinking it was there the entire time. And that's why you're kind of confused when you, well, I'm in a new place and I powered myself here. Why? Because <laughs> you don't know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Anyway, you were about to say. Oh, um, the the concept I was talking about earlier is the the word, the phrase for it, the term for it is the toxoplasm of rage. Can you describe what it is? Yeah, it's it's things it's things that have that feedback of like, oh, this is fake. No, it's not fake. Yeah, it's definitely fake. No, it's definitely not fake. Or um, this is obviously a problem. No, this is people overreacting. No, 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 it's a problem because blah blah blah. So it's content that puts it, but that slices right in between two different sides of an argument, which then uses the energy of both sides to inflate it. Yeah, the controversy sweet spot is another way of of saying it. Controversy sweet spot. It sounds like it's the virus version of memes. 
Yeah, I guess it kind of is that. Uh, and, and it says something about the system that it exists within as well. Um, like if you're not rewarded, let's say you're rewarded for uh, verifiable accuracy instead of number of clicks. Well, we wouldn't have the toxoplasm of rage. You know, we, we wouldn't right. we wouldn't have these same effects. It's something to do with the substrate that these ideas kind of float around in and the way that that substrate or that world rewards ideas based off of different types of merit. I like the Internet, Ben. You do? I don't. Yeah. No, there's there's it's it's beautiful. It's beautiful. And it's it's also terrifying. Yeah, I've just been thinking a lot about, for myself, how can I take back control of my life? With regards to the internet? Yeah, with regards to the internet, with regards to the way I spend my time, the rabbit holes I get sucked down in. I don't get sucked into Wikipedia rabbit holes anymore because YouTube exists. And YouTube is a lot more engaging and way less educational and interesting. Um so I've been thinking a lot uh, over the last couple of years, actually. Uh, how do I reclaim my life? How do I get back to feeling like I'm in control of my life? And the thing that frightens me is, is so it's it's definitely doable. And I've, I've made a lot of really wonderful changes in my life. And I, I feel more human and more alive and more positive and less controlled. I still know I'm very controlled, but less controlled. The thing that frightens me is how how fast those rapids are moving, those tides that we're swimming against, you know? Like, it takes a lot of energy to break myself out of that gravitational pull whenever I find myself in it. When I'm not in it, it's a little bit easier to stay out of it. It almost feels like what people describe with addiction. Like, it, it really does, you know? Well, what are some of the things you've done to help uh, manage that. I, I've turned off um, alerts. Like, so I still use, I think, the two social media things that I actually use on my phone that I find myself going to all the time are still Instagram and Twitter. And I don't allow those to have badges on my phone. That way, at least when I'm using my, and I also don't have those items on my homepage. I've got them on a few pages over, right? So there's a little bit of, you know, intentional but what I've noticed over time after doing that is that when I unlock my phone because I've got a moment in the line or I'm going to the bathroom, yes, I do do that sometimes, I sweep, swipe over a few pages to find those buttons and I open them. Mm -hmm. And it's like, well, why am I auto – it feels like I'm auto swiping over. Right? It doesn't yeah. feel like I'm going, now I'm going to go do this thing. It's more like I'm, well, I didn't see what I wanted on this page, not there. Oh, there's those pretty icons I like. Let me click on those. It seems like it's automatic. So this – might not be generalizable to other people. But I had the exact same experience you were talking about. I put it two pages over <clears throat> in its own little group on, on the iOS home screen or two pages over screen. And um, I would find myself automatically swiping over. Like every time I opened my phone, I would automatically swipe over. The thing that actually worked for me, and this really surprised me, and I still don't understand why, is I put them on my home screen in a little group. So right now, if I open up my phone, um, I've got one little group that has YouTube, um, YouTube, Nebula, pa uh, Patreon, Reddit, and Twitter in there. 
And so th these are all the things that are quite sticky for me. Uh, and I find that I actually don't open that group very often. I think maybe it's because it's right there. It's so easy to tell. Yeah, sorry. I actually don't, I don't have an explanation as to why. It's interesting what is sticky too, because like I have Snapchat on my phone. I have um, a TikTok on my phone somewhere. Somewhere. I don't know where the icons are. And I'll open it sometimes mostly, again, I don't have alerts or notifications happening from these things. Um, but, you know, maybe one of the kids will say something and I'll go take a look at it or I think to open it for some reason, some news article or something that like reminds me and I'll open it. And I will get stuck in those video feeds for an hour. Yeah. No problem. Don't even think like and kind of wanting to stop the entire time and just one more video, just one more video, yeah. just one more video. But I don't ever go and look for the app and open it. Yeah. So there's like even a discovery phase is something that hasn't been trained in me. yet. Maybe I haven't gotten it open enough times to open it that I don't think to open it, which is good. I'll bet they've got dashboards for people like you. Try, they're trying to move the metrics, you know. How do we get people like Lyle in? <laughs> and so that's the funny thing about it that, you know, you and I have both worked at the companies that do this kind of work to figure out how to manipulate. Sorry, to how to figure out how to bring joy to people. <laughs> <laughs> how to connect the world. How to, how to whatever. Connect the world. I have two more things to say. One is just to note, that most of the people at that at whatever company you're thinking of think they're doing the noble thing, the good thing, the thing that will make the users happy. Absolutely. And that's disturbing. But in terms of strategies, I've actually got um, two more. One is I turn off autoplay videos on any app that I possibly can. YouTube doesn't do it. Netflix doesn't do it anymore for me. You can do that. You have to go into the preferences in the web app. Why don't they put it on the mobile app? I don't know. I, I, we should either one of us should ask someone you're talking about at netflix at netflix yeah, yeah. so if, if you l there's more features on the website so go into log into your account on the website and then you can change and you can do it from your phone but you have to do it through the web browser there's so no reason we we couldn't add that but i don't know yeah, there's probably there was a movement to do that when i was leaving the ios team i'll ask i'll ask somebody yeah um so turning off autoplay if there's an app that doesn't let me turn off autoplay i just won't use it and then the the last thing is any app that has an infinitely scrolling feed which is basically every app now as soon as i notice that i kind of want to stop what i'll do is i'll swipe down in one motion i'll swipe way down on the list i'll stop and then i'll only allow myself to go up that's great yeah when i get back to the things i've already seen in order to keep swiping, I have to take this big action of swiping back down to get to where I was. And um, it works quite well. That's really good. That's really good. I shouldn't need that strategy. <laughs> None of us should need these strategies, but we do. And, you know, I think the other thing that we should really... So software development is quite expensive and hard. And even though... You know, you and I know how to do software development. We're making complex apps. We work on them all the time. That's our jobs. It is remarkable to me if you start looking at what the apps are that we build and how much energy and money and time goes into them. And we're at a company right now, both you and I work at Netflix, where the teams are really small. The team I work on, there's four engineers. Um, the application you work on, there's you and one other person sometimes. Mm -hmm. um, so really small compared to other companies. You're talking about it at Facebook, for example, that feed or that Instagram thing. We're talking about 
thousands of people working on this thing to make it better. I would guess there's 150 people on the feeds team. I don't actually know. I truly don't. But that's what I would guess. 150 people. Still, a lot of people devoting their time and energy all the time to making that thing more sticky. And that, that you were talking about swimming against the tide or something, that kind of metaphor. Yeah. It is very much like we are in a a battle for our own ability to control what we want to do. And we're not winning. Mm-hmm. I don't like the battle mentality very much, but... Yeah, I mean, the, the battle implies that both sides know that they're fighting it. <laughs> you know? But it's kind of, it's kind of like, it's kind of like we, I don't know... Uh, coming up with a metaphor on the spot. We work in a pastry shop and people are always coming in the windows and the back door and stealing all of our pastries. And we're just wondering why these, like... Why the pastries are going away? Yeah, like... Where's our happiness? I thought I baked enough. I I swear I baked enough. But imagine if you can't secure any of those doors and windows and you're told, you know what? Maybe you should try to make people not steal pastries. Like... How are you going to do that? We can't just patch our operating system with a with a software update to make us less, you right. know, susceptible to cognitive biases and, and things. I think we can. I mean, I think that a bit of consciousness around that, that we are, like, the, the strategies we're talking about are about trying to patch the bugs we have. Yeah. You know, you were talking about all the people that work at these companies think they're doing good work. And I had this a little bit of this reminiscent of my conversation with Wes yesterday where I kind of talked about evil with him. And, you know, do you believe that there's evil? And I don't think we really dove into it very deeply, but I'll ask you the same thing. Do you believe there's evil? What do you think about evil? Um, One sec. Evil. Profoundly immoral and wicked. Um, Oh, that's an that's an adjective. Evil. Profound immorality and wickedness. (laughs) Especially when regarded as a supernatural force. I don't know about the supernatural force part. Um, but I do think there are a lot of... Um, so I'm thinking like, okay, people, are there evil people? There are people who do really terrible things. I'm not sure if they're evil people. Maybe there are dysfunctional people people who who lack the ability to empathize and so or or lack the ability to feel shame and so neither of those safeguards uh limit what actions they take and a great example of this is you wouldn't say someone that didn't have the ability to see was like you know not a human being or whatever right you would just say well they can't see and so this person that is we might traditionally call them evil is actually just a person that can't feel empathy for example yeah i'm talking about more rather than Rather than on the outsides of the the rarities of humans, because there are, of course, you know, uh, people that have no care of other human beings, right? We give them disease names and stuff. But I'm talking about just like colleagues of of ours, right? People that you've worked with at Facebook, right? I kind of feel right now that Facebook is not beneficial to the world in its current state. And it has a system that is definitely trying to take people's time and sell that to other people. And with the sake, using these bugs in our operating system to to get their way manipulate people i could definitely say that's evil yeah i don't think anybody at the company that's working on this stuff is evil i think they have a different perception about what they're doing 
when you've got 10 people just hanging out together, making some software for funsies, like, that that's fun. As soon as you form a corporation, you don't have 10 people anymore. Well, legally, you actually have 11 people. <laughs> and one of them... One of them is legally obligated to maximize profits for shareholders. Like, what are the 10 people who are employed by that corporation now supposed to do? You know, like, I I think that those shapes, when you put people into those shapes, um, corporations or even just any, any type of, any type of organizational structure that allows people to pass the buck i guess Mm -hmm. i think those are where most of our problems actually come from i'm editing this episode with warren sack it's split into two because we started talking about deep learning and ai and his the history of ai actually and kind of how deep learning's i think warren's perspective is it's kind of a it won't actually do all the things we think that it might do like self-driving cars it probably can't do that um, I know you did a whole podcast on on artificial intelligence, which we can talk about some other day. But one of the things that really brings to mind there is that the one of the serious problems about machine learning systems is that they are very bound to the context, to the frame that they're working in. They're game systems in the default. You have to define all the parameters that they play in really, really well. And then they can do an amazing job. But you have to define that scope, that, that frame of reference, that context really strongly. And when you put people in a context and you say, here are all the rules of this process, we can play those games and we can separate that out because we're playing that game of that context. So when you and I are sitting and playing chess, we both agreed to play chess. We know how the games work. There's a whole rule set around it. And, you know, if the cat were to jump up on the table it would be in violation of the chess game and we'd be angry. If you looked at this remotely from some alien way and there was no meaning, these two people are just like moving these plastic things or these stones around the board in this very weird way. And they're seriously sitting in there and then they got angry at another creature for stopping them from doing that. When you look outside that context, it's all of a sudden kind of stupid, right? It doesn't, but, and so the people that are in the, Con, the context of Facebook or the people that are working on these problems, they are looking in that context. They're not thinking about the existential dread of the planet or they're not thinking about how important it is for them to call their grandmother. All these other human qualities that they do have and they do feel is important, those things are just not on right then. They are mm. focusing on a subset of what they do. Well, they're playing that chess game. There is also a shedding of responsibility that yeah. everyone can do. So... Uh, so when I was at Facebook, I was working on personalized videos. So if you've ever gotten a video, it's like, you've been friends with blah on Facebook for this many years. Uh, that was my team. My code generated that, that video, um, which is kind of awesome. Like my code has made billions and billions of videos. That's really neat. Of unique videos with air quotes. (laughs) Yeah, technically (laughs) all unique. Um, same video with just different image in it. Um, but, but like, there are all of these examples where these unexpected things would happen where when we put user generated content into a particular context in the video, if the user generated content was someone's dead grandparent, 
that totally changes the entire meaning of whatever mm-hmm. scene we've we've dumped the user generated content into. Um, there's a there's a word algorithmic cruelty or phrase algorithmic uh, algorithmic cruelty, which is really a real thing, and and that was a really a thing that we we would consistently be reminded of as these different cases would come in. But the interesting thing was we didn't really work on it all that hard. Like there were people who were in charge of content choosing who did work on this quite a bit to try to like figure out what are the possible ways this could go wrong. But it would always fail because you can't, you can't predict all of the ways something can go wrong. And Facebook actually only has so much information about whether your grandparent is alive or dead. But this, this is that, this mm-hmm. is the deep conversation that, that I'm just editing right now for geek speak with Warren. I mean, it's the, it's the algorithm chapter. It'll be up really, really quick. There's two parts of it. Totally. This kind of stuff is the problem space. You can't fully understand all the meaning of the images, right? And your system, of course, to be clear, just took a list of images. Uh, yeah, my, my system just took a list of, yeah, a list of images. Yeah. yeah. Um, but no one would see one of these, no one at the company would see one of these things and say, oh my God, that's really bad that we're putting someone through that. We should not do this product. That that decision, I feel like occasionally will come up and it's almost never that someone will shelve a product because of the potential for harm. And that I I think that that's, that's kind of a shedding of responsibility that every individual can do because they can always just point to the people above them or below them. Um, and I also think that that's a, a really disturbing naivete that people in Silicon Valley have about Absolutely. the world. <laughs> I'm trying to think about like what the scale factor is of, that makes this worse, right? It's, it's like in some level, you know, 99% of those videos that had the balloons and the congratulations didn't have someone's dead relative. Let's say, let's say all but, um, let's say one in 10,000 was bad. So every once in a while, someone was in pain. If you were a person that made custom videos at a shop and you did that all day, just kind of cranking those things out, every once in a while, you would make a mistake. Right, you wouldn't know the picture you put in was supposed to be this person, but it was other this person instead. You'd make a mistake, and the per- and it might be more frequent than in one in ten thousand. Oh yeah, right? you might probably blow it by putting somebody else's grandmother in the scene, and then it kind of ruins the whole party for everybody. Whatever it is, in that situation though, there's a human and human interaction, and the person that's receiving it understands that some human made a problem, had a flaw, right? That somebody made a mistake, and there's a level they can be angry about it. They could decide to confront the person, and there might be a an experience around feeling it and knowing that some other human being was hurt and then capitulating and saying you're sorry. And and that whole emotional state might be the growing thing that person that's suffering from a loved one loss would would help them in potential, right? Because you then have a human interaction. The thing that's so odd about this mass level is that there's never a human involved except for the people decided yeah. to start it up in the first place. Yeah, yeah. There's also you get a video that's hurtful even if you decide to try to make things better and to try to tell Facebook, hey, you did this, uh, how are you going to do that? Right. You know, like we've just got code that's pooping out billions of videos. Like who cares when, when you're when you're sitting at the at the helm of this video of this video making thing and you're not 
doing anything. It's just going, right? You know, like, it's like, in order to stop doing harm, you need to take an active action. And an active action that might be harmful for your career prospects or for your team or for whatever metric you're trying to move. And potentially could be completely ineffectual because they'll just say, oh, you don't want to work on that project anymore? Go over here instead and somebody else would do it. Yeah. So it's a rough system. But but just coming briefly back to the to the whole shape of corporations thing, that is actually the biggest thing that concerns me in the world. <laughs> the one thing you would change? Um, I don't see how it could be changed because I, I, I do see... I mean, maybe you say corporations can only be of a limited size. Maybe you say um, corporate. I mean, maybe well, maybe you say uh, the consequences for transgressing in these various ways are very large, not little slaps on the wrists. I, the thing is, they're not transgressing. I mean, well, I mm. I just. I think of the solution as, well, we appreciate a public space, even an online public space. We appreciate the ability to communicate with anyone in the world and share ideas around certain areas of interest. And we're currently deciding to pay for those by being manipulated into watching more and more and selling our time to the actual customers of these corporations, the advertisers. And we theoretically could build a completely different way of financing these systems. We just haven't yet. And it you know, comes back down – I think we've had this conversation sometime, so many times. We come back to the point of like capitalism is the problem here. We need to come up with a non-capitalistic way of doing this or another way to say that is a different incentive to provide these services. If there were financial incentives to being kind and to not harming, I think we would have a much better world. I think you won't find a definition of kindness or not harming. But I don't think that that's a reason we should not try. I agree it's a hard problem, but you know what? Silicon Valley has tackled a lot of much harder problems without worrying about whether it's possible. Well, I'm really glad that you spent this time with me helping people and myself included. Remember that our perceptions are not as real as we think, and we have this other external – we have these bugs in our system that can be manipulated all the time. Mm-hmm. And we just touched on some of them. There's, there's many more. And we're only touching on some of them because we're not actually uh, brain people. We're not brain people? We don't study this. It's not our expertise, Larry. <laughs> yeah, you asked me a lot of questions and I'm like, I, I, I can't answer that. <laughs> this is what I heard. <laughs> In fact, oh, actually, can I, can I leave us with one thought by mentioning the Dunbar curve? Uh, the Dunbar curve is great. It's it's basically if you know nothing about if you know barely anything about a thing, you're going to have a decent amount of confidence about how much you know. The more you learn, the more your confidence in your knowledge will precipitously drop. And then eventually you get to the point where you actually know a lot, but you realize I, I actually really don't know very much at all. Uh, this is how I feel. A- anytime I learn anything about quantum physics, I'm like no. No, I had no idea before. I thought I knew. I thought I kind of understood it. Nope. Um, and then eventually that graph kind of goes back up again as you get into the like, you know, medium to expert um, area. But the reason I mentioned it is uh, if somebody is not an expert and they're highly confident, I feel like that's a reason to be suspicious. And I would also very emphatically say we should apply that 
um, to ourselves as well. That's a great heuristic. Yeah. The more yeah. confident I am in saying something, the more I need to think, do I really know what I'm talking about? How how much do I know? And I think that that who you think you are in any moment, it, it, it changes over time. That's the other thing that's really I'm trying to get better about. Um, you know, when do I click on stuff that I probably don't want to do that? It's when I'm tired. When do I, you know, eat the things? It's when I'm not really focused on the thing I'm focusing on, right? It's it's when I'm distracted and I'm tired that I make the decisions that are like trusting too much in what my brain is telling me is right. Mm. I don't know if you want to talk about this at all, but one thing you and I have not talked about is we're talking a whole bunch about external perception on what we see in the world and how we're tricked by what's going on in the world. How do we actually know who we are individually inside ourselves trying to remove all of that perception, all the society structures that are put upon us to be the certain type of person? Mm. Where Where is the definition of us coming from? Hmm. I feel like I want to say that's way above my pay grade, but unfortunately, philosophers don't get paid all that much. Um, <laughs> one thing I sometimes think about is who is the person who, uh, or who is the, uh, what is the entity, what is the, the thing that is observing me thinking? Is that also me? Or is that really me? And I'm observing myself just kind of going through the motions. I think that's more, I, I, when I meditate and I see thoughts coming up and I go, let me stop doing that thought. I think of the thoughts coming to me as the same as words from you coming to me. I hear them. They're processed. They're mine now. But they didn't, I didn't decide to think those things. The great example of this is how will you finish the sentence that you're on? Because you're accustomed to the language you're using, you know that when you start a sentence, you will finish it basically accurately. But in reality, there is so much structure to what is a correct sentence and what is not. And it's so automatic to us, it's actually hard to make an incorrect structured sentence. How do we do that? I'm s- We're not thinking about the end of the sentence before we start it. I'm sorry, I, I didn't quite understand that. <laughs> <laughs> so I messed up. No, um, I, I mean, when you started talking about your own sentence, I started... Um, Thinking about yeah, sentence. thinking about you know where the commas were, and I, <laughs> I graciously added a semicolon in between two of your thoughts. <laughs> it's but but you can do it yourself. Like go ahead and tell me something about your day, like what you had for lunch, and when you start, start thinking about like how are you going to finish. You don't know how you're going to finish that. I had a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. That sentence was too short. I knew how I was going to end that sentence before I started it. <laughs> but um, no, I, I I hear what you're saying. Yeah, like where where do ideas come from? Where do thoughts come from? Are those thoughts coming from us? Like I I, well, I mean, totally us in the flesh body sense, yes. Are they? I mean, like I I think I totally understand why someone could think, you know what? I'm channeling uh whatever, right? Metaphysical. Oh yeah. Whatever. I did have an experience once where um I I was on mushrooms and I was playing piano. And I really felt, I I didn't intellectually believe this, but I strongly felt like the concept of music was sitting next to me on the piano bench. 
and I was just channeling what was coming to me. And I listened with like listening back to the things that I make in, in that, that I've made in that state. It's very different from what I, as I understand myself would normally make. So was that me? Was that not me? You know, it's, they're kind of interesting questions to think about. I think from the atheistic, you know, side, there's not a lot of magic in the world kind of space. Yeah, that's you. Obviously, that's you. But from the perspective of like when you say, well, what is really me? Sure. Who knows? Like, I mean, what I'm saying is that where that music came from is contained from by the largest organ of you, Ben Jaffe. Yeah. Your skin does contain where that came from. Here's a thought for you. All right. You write... You write a JavaScript application, okay? And it's running. I do it all the time. And and the code, the program calls math.random to get a random number. And then it gets a random number. Where did that random number come from? Was that your program? Well, it was the program and the state of the machine. It. I mean, it probably... Um, not shelled out, but it probably called something else that was on the system level that it was not aware of, which figured out what the random number should be, random-ish. From, which was probably based on the compiler and also based on the operating system and also based on potentially the hardware, depending on how good a pseudo-random, if it was pseudo-random sure. or if that random was even deeper down the system. Yeah, it was system after system after system that was producing that random number for us. And the state of the machine and the state of time. Yeah, so point is... If your JavaScript application is your conscious thought. It's not doing much. I mean, <laughs> that that data came from me, the, the machine, but it didn't come from my consciousness. Or it, it didn't come from my consciousness-ness-dicity thing. So that's, that's the thing that gets me. Like, in meditating, I'd never hear or see the self i don't really get to the lyle i'm very much lightly aware that i own the perceptions of things that come along you know you get lost in thought because the thought takes over the system it's not because you decide to think on something so if you that's the layer i kind of currently am thinking of myself as it's more like it's the piece of me that that says oh the rest of this is me (laughs) and when you break that down when you start meditating and saying, well, that piece of me, that what's what's coming along is not something I control. It's just there, like the noise in the room or the, the smell or the feeling on my skin when I'm sitting in a chair. All those things are just happening to me. To me, thought feels exactly like that. Thought is happening to you. Like your thoughts come out of the darkness. And then as soon as you can see them, you're like, oh, I, th- there's a thought. This is what the thought is. Maybe I'll do something with this thought. I think it's almost like you've got to either use it or try to let it go. I feel that way too. Yeah. yeah. It's um It's really interesting when you start thinking about that. When you start thinking about cuz to some degree we're having the free will conversation. It doesn't have to yeah. actually be the free will conversation, but it it's kind of free will conversation-ish. Um, it's it's adjacent. Yeah, it's free will adjacent. Uh, it's really interesting to talk about responsibility mm. with this, right? Like, mm-hmm. I, I, uh, 
I am tall, and that's really beneficial in a lot of ways. But that's not based on any any merit or anything. I didn't. I don't deserve to be tall. I was just born and I'm tall. Like it's a Complete thing that random. happened, right? Um, you can follow that to I'm a person Everywhere. who has never committed a crime because one of the state of my brain and my body and my whateverness, and then you committed a crime, and then two, oh, I can tell you the one crime I've committed that I'm aware of. Um, and and two, uh, the environment that I happen to have grown up in, and the people who I happen to have uh, been with, and the fact that I've never been wanting for money or food or any of these various things that that might motivate someone to do that. Um, I, I say this with no judgment because I really don't believe I'm above committing crimes. I just feel like I happen to have not committed any crimes. Other than I bet you've thought about crime. Other than stealing, I stole one thing in my life consciously, which was my heart. A, no. a single Andes mint from the bulk bin uh, at Safeway on, you told on me the Front story Street. Before. Yeah, that's Front awesome. Street, not Front Street. Mission Front Street. Street when you were in college. Yeah, oh. yeah, Mission Street when I was in college. Whoa. Yeah, Mission Street you on the West Side Safeway. Yeah. Yep. So I, I stole an Andes. Haven't mint. you done illegal drugs? I mean. So there are a lot of really dumb laws. Talk about shrooms, right? There are really a lot, a lot of dumb laws. Um, I've definitely jaywalked before. But I stole that Andy's mint knowing that I was doing a bad thing, TM. And and I felt really bad about it. And then I I didn't I had the uneaten Andy's mint and I'm like, I can't really return this. It's not great to walk into a Safeway with away. a mint and put it in their <laughs> their their bulk bin. No, so I ate it. That's a different crime. <laughs> so I ate it and I felt guilty. And you've never liked Andy's mitts again. Actually, it's given me a great story that I can employ when talking That's about true. free will. Last year, we made gingerbread houses and Maggie used Andy's mitts as the tiles to the roof of the house. And it looks fantastic. Yes. And this year, we did gingerbread houses and we didn't buy the Andy's mitts. We couldn't find them. That roof would not have worked. With any other mint. If it rained. Gingerbread doesn't work very well in the rain. Actually, they probably would have worked. They actually probably would have worked. When I thought when I started the conversation about thinking about how we know who we are and stuff, I wasn't actually thinking necessarily of that, but also the qualities that we put out there in the world. Like me getting angry because of shame, angry at something else because of shame and then justifying that anger thinking that the anger was coming from the experience I was having that happens all the time to us and that's not about perceptions outside in the world it's about our changing of state deciding that these perceptions mean something else so it's not just and then it fluctuates over over different time um, but I also think about like the roles we play right when I'm with my family of five of us, you know, three kids and my wife, Maggie, when we're together, I'm in a slot and deviating from that slot is not part of the system. Like I'm supposed to play that role. Yeah. When I'm at work, I have a different role. That's both me, but they're completely contingent on the kind of thing I'm doing. Cause you've drawn, you've drawn walls and you've said, I've, or I've been given walls. No, what's the, what's the word I'm using or I'm, I'm trying to use. Um, 
when you separate things into different parts of your brain and keep them apart compartmentalize that's it thank you that would have been really sad if i hadn't come up with that i mean if you hadn't come up with that word See, you, no, you came up with it. You, you, you came up with it. You cued me to come up with it for you, and I achieved that. But then you got it, so you came up with it. In a sense, the, the word just came out of the darkness. The word was channeled through us. So I wouldn't have said that word unless you had cued me to so say you, it. And I had no choice but to say it. So you compartmentalize different parts of yourself. No? I don't. I, well, I'm not conscious that I do that. The times when I notice I, I deviate from it is that I might say something or do something that's not correct in that context. Mm. And I'm very aware of that. Nice, nice drill. Oh, yeah. I, I just found that it was about to – it was balanced kind of strangely. Um, hmm. So you fulfill – you fulfill roles that have been created by society, mm-hmm. by your workplace – do you find yourself doing that? Oh, yeah. Do you notice when it happens? Yeah. Um, hmm. Do I notice when it happens? That's the thing about it. I don't notice it. I just know that if I acted exactly the way I am at work with my family or vice versa, things wouldn't be good. Mm. Or it wouldn't be normal. Something would be wrong. I mean, you and I are doing the same thing right now. Uh, we're talking in a slightly different tone than we normally would. We're not, yeah, we're we're not really going into this, you know, quiet, pensive place. We're both keeping our mouths exactly two inches from our respective microphones. Um, so, yeah, I mean, uh, we're, we're, we're kind of doing that. Um, hmm. I think I am often aware of it. You know, actually, this is the thing that really messes with my mind sometimes. I can't say with any confidence how good I am at any of these things because I am aware of how bad I am at these things. So like like what? Like for example, um how uh for example, how how much do I know that I'm fulfilling a particular role like as I move through my life? I can't actually give you an answer because the only times I notice it are when I'm noticing it. Yeah. I can't tell you how much I don't notice that actually is there. Um, <clears throat> or similarly, like how, how often, how often do I fall prey to cognitive biases and end up very confident about a thing that we I just don't know who knows. And the same level, we can't act like everything we decide could be wrong because if we do that. We'll be paralyzed with self questioning. Then you'll be like me through my late 20s and early 30s. Did you not make any decisions? <laughs> uh, well, I, I definitely got stuck in this place of... It, uh, it was weird. I got stuck in this place of more easily trusting other people and other people's confidence than my own. Because I was focusing so much on the the gaps in perception that I can see that mm. I have, but I can't see the gaps in perception that other people have in the same way. Like we all learn to cover up our insecurities and our lack of confidence and our lack of knowledge really well in order to just be functional in this weird world where that's not rewarded. Sure. Um, 
yeah, so so that definitely got in in my way in terms of my own personal development as a as a confident person who you know liked themselves and trusted themselves. If confidence is something that we like in the world, that we praise confidence, we have confident people succeed. And yet, we know that we're tricked all the time by our brains. Aren't we rewarding the people that decide that they're not being tricked? Yup. That's depressing. Yeah. That is a little depressing. We can't end on that. We got to go up on a high note. Um, I, I don't know. I, I think I think there is hope. But um, what I what I try to do is keep your mouth near the microphone. Well, my cat had to go out. You know. I guess I've just been trying to focus on myself more than others. I, it's really important to respect other people's autonomy, what other people want to do, even if I don't like it. And that can be really frustrating when I see that I am focusing on being more rational, on taking the high road as much as I can on all these different things and seeing that most of the mm-hmm. world is not. But I think the place I've I've kind of landed, at least at this point, is that will make me happier to focus on being the best person I can be by whatever yeah. metrics, even if the rest of the world is not the the best person, best people that they can be by those same metrics. And to just keep in mind that maybe other people have other metrics that are also uh, valuable and worthwhile. Yeah, when I, when I get in this place of like, how can we fix social media or how can we make the world a better place through our skills and all that, I definitely start getting depressed with this idea like, well, people seem to like to get into the rage um, and seem to like the clickbait and that's what they're doing. And so how, what, how could I possibly help anybody else do that? And I think that's partly why I wanted to have these conversations for this podcast is to really clarify some of the ideas I've got about myself and see if other people have similar methodologies and some other ways of thinking about the world, maybe that's all there you can do is kind of, you know, share with some close people that you care about some ideas and come to and help each other out and also, you know, work on yourself as you're going. That's all maybe we can really do. Cause I don't want to be that yeah. confident, wrong person leading people astray. That would be terrible. When I was in college no, actually, when I was in when I was in high school, I was pretty atheist in high school, and I was a little militant about it. I was oh yeah, I like, that. What's wrong with all of you? And like, oh, you remember that with me or with yourself? No, no, by myself for myself. Yeah, yeah I, think, I was the same way. Yeah, yeah. I think I got all of that out by by college, but um, but yeah, I I was I was kind of probably terrible to be around if you weren't also an atheist, and. I don't know. It's just it's just not a fun way to live. No. To go through life constantly judging other people. And I really do believe that the world would be better without organized religion, but you know what? It's here and and it does good for people. It does some good for people, it does some bad, and I guess I just feel like to some degree who am I to judge? There's a line yeah. cuz you can't say I'm not going to judge anyone. Anyone can be intolerant of whoever. Like, that's definitely not a good road to go down. But I don't know. I, I feel like there's a there's a spot in the middle that's a bit more comfortable. 
This has been lovely to talk about. It's very, very lovely. Thanks, Ben. I always enjoy my conversation with you. Yeah. Hey, happy 2021. Happy 2022, even. Oh, wait. Sorry. <laughs> wait, on the topic of this year, this is the most alliterative year, alliterative, alliterative year that any of us will probably ever experience. 2022? 2022. What about 2020? That seems more... 2020 is only four T's. Sometimes I type LOL, but instead of LOL, just to amuse myself, I type capital I, O, capital I. Why not a zero? Because the zero is easy to see. The capital uh, I, if it's a sans serif font, it's almost indistinguishable. So that's not laugh out loud. What is it? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. It's so funny. <laughs> I I crack so myself funny. up. It's kind of like the, the other joke that's that's very similar is, you know, uh, the, the idea of kerning? Uh, kerning is the... Space between letters? The spacing between letters, right? And so bad kerning, sometimes you'll have these letters that kind of crash into each other. And so when I spell kerning, I spell it K-E-M-I-N-G. Because if you put the R and the N together with poor kerning, it looks like an M. Oh my God, that's the best spelling of kerning ever. That is lovely. (laughs) I-O-I and keming. (laughs) You can't pronounce it too. That doesn't work as well. Well, the British say solder, so... Thank you. That's a great up- <laughs> that's a great leaving upload. Thank you so much, Ben. Yeah, yeah, yeah definitely. Happy New Year. <laughs> Happy New Year. <laughs> <laughs>